Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's the guy who you'd like to ask whether he actually ever tried flying the airline he used to run as a customer. Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And he built his first model airplane at five years old, but didn't realize it wasn't the real thing. He's Seth Kaplan, (laughs) NPR's here and now transportation analyst. He just ruined it for me, Ben. I thought it was. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about Boeing's latest problems and whether the company should try something entirely new. We'll discuss why most low-cost carriers don't use turboprop planes, and we'll listen to a real passenger complaint and decide whether the customer is really always right. Yeah, it might not feel like that in the airline industry. That's in our finer wine segment. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, yet another issue for Boeing's troubled 737 MAX, with the plane maker working to address a newly discovered glitch that prevents the jet's flight control computers from powering up and verifying that they're ready for flight. That according to the Wall Street Journal. Boeing previously hoped to begin the process of certification flight testing by the end of this month. That now seems highly unlikely. Airlines have taken the max out of their schedules into June. And when it comes to airline schedules, not all months are created equal. You know, right here in the depths of the northern hemisphere winter, most airlines around the world would always have some planes parked right now. So the impact of the max grounding right now is perhaps somewhat muted. It's just the maxes that are parked rather than more typically kind of older, less efficient planes. But before you know it, it's March, that's spring break in the U.S., followed by Easter, Passover, Memorial Day, all kinds of busy holiday travel periods around the world, with airlines looking at a second summer disrupted by the grounding. Now, Ben, I have a bigger question for you, but first for context. Let's all remember that the MAX was a plane that Boeing never really wanted to build. It would have preferred to wait maybe another decade and build an all-new single-aisle, narrow-body aircraft, uh, maybe with a lighter airframe made of composite material like the 787 Dreamliner rather than aluminum. But then Airbus slapped new engines on the old 320 and started selling re-engined A320s by the thousands. Those are called the A320neos. And Boeing felt like it had no choice but to slap new engines on the old 737. No time to design an all-new plane. And Boeing got a little unlucky. Whereas Airbus really could just slap new engines on the old plane, the new engines didn't exactly fit on the old 737. So Boeing had to kind of slide them forward on the wings, which could affect how the airplane flew. But Boeing felt it needed to be able to say the MAX flew just like the old 737s because that's what Airbus was promising with the A320, the best of both worlds. You know, a far more efficient airplane because of the new engines, but pilots wouldn't need expensive training to transition from the old plane because it would feel the same to them. But to accomplish that, Boeing came up with MCAS, and we all know what happened next. Well, after 346 deaths and now all the delays, MAX pilots are going to need special simulator training after all which makes the 737 MAX a less competitive aircraft against the A320neo. That's, of course, what Boeing is trying to avoid. Now, Ben, here's my big question. 
A few people have asked me if I think there's any chance in the world that the Max will never fly again. And I've said, gosh, uh, you know, I really don't think so. Although, of course, none of us ever imagined a lot of what has happened lately. But my big question is, do you think somewhere inside Boeing, there's a team of people designing that next plane to completely replace the 737 an all new lightweight airframe and so forth? which could leapfrog Airbus. Is that something that that could be happening secretly right now and just none of us know about? There's a lot in all you just said there, Seth. <laughs> and uh, and there, there's a, I have a lot of thoughts about it. First of all, I think there's absolutely people at Boeing working on the next generation single aisle airplane. But I also think there's people at Airbus doing that as well. I think it takes so long to research and develop a new airframe and new set of engines, you know, 10, 20 years in some cases, lots of money that I think both Boeing and Airbus needing to be very forward looking companies, even though Boeing right now is, you know, trying to get back on its feet properly. I think they both have teams of people looking at what the next generation is. Is that just lighter? Airframe materials like more composites. Is it a redesigned cockpit that maybe instead of two trained pilots needs a pilot and a data scientist or a computer engineer or something? <laughs> is it uh, you know is it something that none of us have even thought about yet? But I think they are. The issue for the Max, I think, is that if the Max doesn't fly again, the world is going to be in a little bit of trouble because that size airplane in an efficient operating standard like the A320neo and previously the 737 MAX promised is really the workhorse of airlines around the world. Everywhere and every continent where people fly regularly, sort of a 150-ish seat efficient airplane is what flies most of the people. We all get excited about the 19-hour flight on the big wide body or look at the big A380 pull up to the gate, we you know, painted like Emirates, right? And things like that. <laughs> but most of pe most people fly on these single aisle planes around the world. And the 737 MAX had sold a lot of airplanes before the problems. And if those are never going to be delivered, Airbus can't make enough Airbus 320 Neos fast enough. And most of the world wants competition in that space anyway, because that makes everyone better. So and, and Boeing and Boeing can't produce something new fast enough. I mean, that's the point here that that it's it's not as though we're, we're, we're talking not about a year or two or three of, of lead time if they were going to start something all new. We're talking closer to a decade, right? I think that's right. And, and in that decade, while they are building that plane and again, they're not going to be unique in that because Airbus is going to come out just before or just after them. Right. That's the way those things work. Yeah. They still need to have a plane that's competitive with the Neo out there. And so now they're saying that the pilots are going to need to be simulator trained. That's a big change for the economics of that plane. But my sense is that Boeing is going to eat all of that change, meaning that the pricing they have on that plane and who's going to pay for that training in terms of the pilot time and such is all going to be reflected in Come what people Boeing's are willing to yeah. pay for the 737 MAX going forward against the 320 NEO. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you just nailed it in terms of the biggest long-term consequence for Boeing of all of this. Uh, and I felt for many months, like the biggest question was whether there was going to need to be simulator time, because that's something that now, I mean, and I'm sure these discussions are, are happening with airlines, but 
this is kind of a different plane than Boeing promised uh, to, to airlines. And, and so I'm sure there are airlines saying, hey, let's reopen all of it now in terms of the, the pricing. And, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, the biggest question isn't whether this plane is recertified, you know, next month or the month after, whether it flies in June or July or August, but it's all of those thousands of maxes that Boeing has sold and, and thousands more that it would hope to sell in years after that, uh, you know, that, that in that regard, it's, kind of not the same plane uh that that that, that they were promising uh because if it's going to cost i don't know what, what what is it is it millions of dollars over the life of an aircraft in additional pilot training costs perhaps i think it probably is and it also means you know take it it's going to just creating enough simulator time to do it some of it is not only going to be just the time the day or two that pilots need in the simulator but where are those simulators going to be and are they going to have to send the pilots to these until there's they're going to be enough simulators around the world they've sold these planes in china they've sold them in india they've sold them in north america south america other parts of asia right and so it's um they they got to have just the throughput to be able to do it as well as the time it takes to actually do it so i do think that the numbers in the millions is about right probably and it's going to affect the price of the plane and the airlines that recommit to this plane are going to need a lot from Boeing I think to say that this is what we're going to do versus wait a little bit longer for the A320neo that Airbus could give us and I think that's a lot of what people miss in terms of the success of these of these airframe manufacturers. I mean, engine manufacturers, everybody else too. But you know, there have been headlines this month about you know Airbus sold lots of airplanes last year. Boeing didn't sell very many airplanes, and that's true. But it's not just a question of volume; it's also a question of pricing, right? And and so so the problem for Boeing here going forward is that even if it gets back to a point where it's selling just as many Maxes as Neos, what's it able to charge for those planes? And, and Boeing has always been able to charge a premium. Uh, you know, the, the claim that Boeing had always made was basically, I mean, they didn't exactly say it this way, but but very often, you know, if you had a competing Airbus and Boeing product, it'd be very similar, but the Airbus product might be a little cheaper to buy, but Boeing would say, oh, but our plane is, is, is a better economic operator, you know, maintenance is a little cheaper and all that sort of thing. And now you have a plane where uh, it, 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 it doesn't look like it's going to be the same economic performer that Boeing had, had promised. So you wonder if at least, uh, you know, even if, look, there's no way, as you said, to sort of fill the gap with, with the new plane because of what has to happen here in the next several months or in the next several years, I should say, you wonder if at least Boeing next time will be first, whereas last time Airbus was first with the Neo and Boeing kind of had to rush to market with something, which which is the max, whether Boeing is the one that gets out there first with the next generation of narrow body aircraft and then uh and then airbus is in the position of of kind of having to scramble and come out with something to be clear i'm not talking about i mean boeing publicly has been very clear that it's perhaps going to come out with something to replace the 757 which is a a, which is a single aisle aircraft that's just a different kind of airplane that flies longer missions and and uh uh we know that some airlines have lost patience with that. United has ordered some planes from Airbus instead of perhaps doing that from uh, Boeing and so forth. But that's that's different. That's public. That was happening anyway. I'm talking about a true replacement uh, for the 737. So yeah, no, it, it, interesting questions indeed. And I, the, the reason it hit me, Ben, is because you know I remembered when when I was covering this a decade ago, and you know was Boeing going to come out with something like the Max? And we didn't know it's going to be called the Max, but was it going to re-engine a plane or was it going to wait and do something all new and back then everybody was saying well it could take like a decade before 
the technology in terms of engines and airframes are to a point where it would be worth coming out with something all new. And all of a sudden, time flies, doesn't it? And here we are, and it's it's a decade later. You know, it's, so I thought it was uh, it, it was an interesting question again. It's fascinating, and I think it's also worth asking, Seth. Shortly after this happened, in one of President Trump's many many tweets, he commented about this he incident. Tweets? I didn't he, know that. <laughs> you didn't know he tweeted, right? <laughs> and he tweeted that Boeing should rebrand the plane before they bring it back. And a lot of people laughed that off because what does he know about airplanes? About maybe as much as he knows about tariffs or anything else. Right? But it's <laughs> but um, but the reality is is Boeing may have to think about something like yeah. that. The people have been talking about the Max in negative terms for a year now in this drip 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 issue and one person's fired then another person's fired then tweets from engineers about how they never liked the plane in the first place and now they're saying the pilots have to be done at some point do you want to just say we've got a new plane and you know don't look behind the curtain it might have used to be called the 737 max but now it's called the 737 ultra new or you know whatever it is right or 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 maybe not or and 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 somebody you know a, a person you know People can have their opinions about uh, President Trump, but uh, somebody who everybody in the airline industry takes seriously, Stephen Udvarhazy of Air Lease Corp, uh, formerly ILFC, I I mean, just the most prolific airline leasing mind probably in the history of the world, has just come out and told, I believe it was Bloomberg, that he thinks it's time for a rebrand. And what he said, uh, and and this is kind of what what I've wondered, it's not that you necessarily need a new name. I remember thinking many months ago, why not just call it the Dash 8, Dash 9, Dash 10, right? Just like the the, the 787 Dreamliner, right? You've got the 787, Dash 8, Dash 9, Dash 10. So the old planes would be the Dash 800, right? The 737-800, and the new plane would be the, the Dash 8. I mean, you're not going to fool anybody. People are going to know what this plane used to be. But there you have it. And like you said, people laughed back when President Trump made the suggestion. But now you have somebody who Boeing takes very, very seriously uh, as well making a similar suggestion. You know, in the airline space, if you remember, there was Value Jet Airlines that had a terrible crash in the Everglades. And after that, they bought a little airline called AirTran and changed the name of the company, in part to separate themselves from Value Jet being associated with this terrible crash. And so at some point, maybe the 737 MAX name needs to go away because it just has too much baggage attached to that name. Exactly. And uh, that is now becoming, it's gone from sort of this maybe unlikely possibility to something as the months have dragged on here. And, and as you have people in, in the space who know about this stuff making these suggestions, uh, yeah, not, not such a crazy suggestion after all, even if it started in a, uh, with a tweet all those months ago. Well, Ben, it's time to take our first question now from Chris in Melbourne. Chris asks, why don't more low-cost carriers like Spirit and Allegiant use turboprop planes as they are cheaper and can be more efficient than turbofan planes, than you know, jet engine planes? And I should say, by, by the way, it's uh, Chris just wrote Melbourne. So I don't know if that's Melbourne, Florida or Melbourne, Australia or some other Melbourne. I'm going to guess Florida uh, just because if, if the examples that Chris is using are uh, Spirit and Allegiant, uh, you know, those, those are U.S. airlines, but it could just be a very astute listener from somewhere else in the world anyways so 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 the question here and i think this might have been prompted then by a discussion we had on an earlier episode about the economics of turboprops so on a on a unit cost basis right like if you have a turboprop plane with 70 seats versus a 
jet with 70 seats, the turboprop, when it's able to complete a mission, you know, it's not going to have the same range or anything, but for a short mission, it, it's going to it's going to be cheaper. It's going to take less fuel per passenger. But the issue here, and I'll let you take it from here, but I, I think the issue here is that we shouldn't confuse that to think that the economics of the turboprop with 70 seats are better than a 150 seat jet let's say in terms of the the cost per passenger we're 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 talking about planes that have the same seating capacity aren't we i think you're right seth i guessed melbourne florida as well and i'm guess he's thinking i would like to have cheap fares out of melbourne florida yeah, but, but i know i'm never going to get a 150 seat plane here so maybe if spirit or Allegiant had a uh had a turboprop, they might serve my city. That's the way I read that note, yeah. but I might have been assuming too much in it. Turboprop planes are efficient airplanes, and they're not only cheaper to fly because they burn less fuel per seat than a jet airplane of similar size, they're also cheaper to buy. And um, so you can you can buy more of them, them than you can regional jets for the same amount of money. And so it's a really good question, but there's a good reason why low-cost airlines don't do it. And low-cost airlines, one of the main ways they keep their costs low is to keep their complexity low. In any business, but it's, but it's true in airlines too, complexity is costly. And so to have two airplane types for Allegiant to have you know, its airplanes and a turboprop or Spirit to have its A320s and a turboprop would mean differences in pilot training, differences in mechanic training, need to place parts for each plane in different stations. Do you have, do you fly both planes into one station? And so you need to have mechanics and parts for both, or do you isolate planes by station that has its own inefficiencies in it? So an airline like Spirit or Allegiant is just going to say, if I can't do it with the plane I have, I just won't do it. And that is the low cost mentality, which is different than a big full service airline that says, I'm going to have airplanes at all different size points so I can fly to Hawaii, I can fly to Asia, and I can fly to Kalispell, Montana, all from my hub knowing that I'm going to need different size airplanes for these things. That's a more expensive model. It drives higher fares to the consumers, serves more cities. And the reason that Spirit and Allegiant and airlines like that can offer fares as low as they do is because they keep their model really simple. And speaking of Kalispell, Montana, see, Allegiant kind of has it both ways, don't they? Because they actually serve some of these smaller cities, which normally you think of, okay, if I'm going to small serve a smaller city, I have to serve it with a smaller airplane. But Allegiant especially, and Spirit to a lesser degree, but Allegiant really built their business around this. They said, you know what? We could serve very small cities. We just have to fly there very infrequently. You know, and so, so they they really built this network around, yeah, uh, although they've evolved it somewhat at the beginning, certainly flying two or three times a week from smaller cities with, with MD-80s back then. Now it's Airbus 319s and 320s uh, to those giant vacation destinations like Orlando, uh, like Las Vegas, Phoenix, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, and they said, yeah, we can fly whatever airplane we want there as long as we, uh, we get the capacity right in terms of the total number of seats. Now, you might think, well, why can't the you know, why can't Delta do that then? Well, because those airlines, of course, care about frequency because their customers care about frequency, right? Because they're because their customers are a mix of people who, you know, need to get to a meeting at a certain time. And yeah, also some leisure travelers who might have more flexibility. Whereas Allegiant, when they show up in uh, some of these cities that used to have nothing but 
you know, connecting high cost flights to Disney World, and they say we're going to offer you a nonstop flight to Disney World, and it's going to be really cheap. Those people are willing to say, okay, when are you flying? We we will we'll work our schedule around you, right? So Allegiant has really been able to have the the best of of all worlds, and even serve some of those places that you might have thought traditionally an airline like that couldn't have served. You're right. And it's a brilliant model that Allegiant created years ago using that. And it's a little more, though, than just saying the total number of seats I fly every week is going to be limited because I'm not going to fly every day. It's also that they built that whole airline on really low capital cost by using older airplanes that big airlines were shedding in favor of newer airplanes. So they could afford to fly only a couple days a week because they didn't lose a ton of money when they weren't flying since they didn't pay a lot for the air airplane itself. Now they spent a lot of money keeping them maintained. But one term that airlines use a lot is utilization, which re- generally refers to the number of hours per day the planes fly. A big airline like an American might fly their planes 10 or 11 hours within a 24-hour period. A low-cost airline might be more like 13 or 14 airlines, 14 hours, I mean. Allegiant, at least traditionally, has only flown six or seven hours a day because they have those older airplanes. So it's the combination of having a relatively cheap airframe and limiting number of seats makes it possible for them to serve these small cities that earlier were only served by turboprops. And even when, once they went out and started getting the A319s and 320s, that was when other airlines were getting the 320 Neos. And so so the those that previous generation of, of Airbus and Aerobodies had started to lose some of its luster in terms of pricing. And that's when Allegiant swooped in and, and, and got those planes. So, yeah, very opportunistic airline in in many regards so a a great question there and 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 i think that's the distinction that turboprops yes like for like a 70 seat turboprop is more efficient than a 70 seat jet but it's not more efficient than a 150 seat jet because you still need two pilots and you know a lot of costs are still there and so especially if you're a legion you can figure out a way to do it with the 150 seat jet it's 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 generally going to make more sense, which is not to say that there aren't low cost carriers around the world that have tried with turboprops. Uh, WestJet being a a, a a prominent example just north of the border in Canada, a large low cost carrier that has a whole fleet of turboprop jets. Well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, we have another good question. This one is about airfares. It's that and then a complaint during fine or whine. More Airlines Confidential is next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, time for another question. This one from Matthew in Des Moines. Matthew writes... Hi, guys. Big fan of the show. I've been binging the entire back catalog since the holidays. My question is about airfare. I'm on Scott's Cheap Flights mailing list, and every so often I get an alert that nearly every airport in the U.S. has round-trip flights to Europe for under $500, sometimes under $400. It's usually on one U.S. airline and their European partners, though sometimes multiple U.S. airlines get in on the action. And I mostly understand why these fare wars happen. But my question is, why? Is it that airlines make the sales nationwide rather than just out of big cities? Surely it can't be profitable for the airlines to sell me a $486 flight from Des Moines to Amsterdam. 
but I'm grateful to no longer have to drive to O'Hare for good deals. First of all, Matthew, thanks so much for the compliment. We certainly appreciate that. And and Ben, look, there's no question that if everybody on the plane was paying $486 to get from Des Moines to Amsterdam, that airline would be out of business very quickly. <laughs> so so what's, what's going on here? Is it a mistake or is it rational in, in certain cases? Why does that make sense? If in fact, it does make sense. Well, thank you, Matthew. Great question. And airline pricing sure is crazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, this is a case where craziness actually does make some sense. And there's a couple of reasons. If I sell a seat to you for to someone in Chicago for $400 to go to Amsterdam. I'm socializing a real cheap price to get from Chicago to Amsterdam. And when I sell a lot of business from Chicago to Amsterdam, I'm a little worried about that price being really available. If I sell it to you for $400 and somebody later on would come and be willing to pay me more for that seat, airlines call that displacement, meaning I displaced some revenue because I sold it more cheaply than I could have later on. But if I sell a ticket to someone for $400 that would have paid $800, I also lose money in what airlines call dilution. I diluted half of the revenue in the case where somebody would have paid $800 but only paid $400. As consumers, we all love dilution when we experience it, when we are able to buy something for less money than we would be willing to pay for it. That's a real positive thing as a customer. But for a business or an airline, that can be expensive. So if you think about it, in Chicago, United Airlines is fighting with American for all the business travel into Europe and everywhere else. In Des Moines, they're fighting with everyone because you can take a flight to anyone's hub and connect through there. I know it's not the most convenient thing for you, but United doesn't have as much a hold on you in Des Moines as they do to the customers in Chicago. So in many ways, it makes more sense for them to give you the cheap price because when you have to pay more at another time, you're more likely to do it rather than to be annoyed that, hey, sometimes I get it for 400 and sometimes I have to pay 800. They want to spread these cheap fares as broadly as they can so that no one city gets used to them being common and it's more expensive for them to make that be more common in a big city where they're trying to attract business customers. That's one reason. The other reason is if they have a joint venture with this carrier, they're sharing all the revenue and it won't matter. But sometimes it may be just a code share. And if it's a code share and you're flying from Chicago to Amsterdam, maybe on KLM, and they're willing to offer a real cheap fare to Europe, KLM, that's a KLM decision. They decide to offer that. Maybe they're yield managing it and they can sell a certain number of those and they'll do it. But if their connecting carrier in Chicago and or in whatever hub can carry the passenger further on to Des Moines, they can actually take some of that $400 and keep it for themselves. So it's possible in the case of a code share that the only way the selling US carrier gets any money out of it is to connect you into the hub in the first place because the rest of it all goes to the partner. So those are two ways that I think can rationalize why you would get the cheap fare in Des Moines. And I'm glad you don't have to drive to O'Hare. Absolutely. And and a great point about how the, you know, counterintuitive that Des Moines, Amsterdam is in some ways a more competitive market than Chicago, Amsterdam, because I don't think people would think that. But you know, with Chicago, Amsterdam, in terms of nonstop service, which exists, I'm just looking here on DO by Surium schedule data, uh, KLM and United both do it five times a week, nonstop this month. And if 
you look ahead to the summer, it's probably a little more because you know peak summer demand. They probably go up to daily. Uh, but so you know that that's that's all in terms of the nonstop options, which are what people are obviously going to prefer. Whereas at a Des Moines, just jumping here on Expedia, you know, I just. Des Moines to Amsterdam, uh, round trips, and I, every airline imaginable is involved in that with you know with their partners and everything. And yeah, you, know, you can fly Aer Lingus from Dublin to Chicago. So you know, so so many different ways. Uh, once you get into connections and and double connections and all the rest of it, so actually a a more competitive market. And a great question there by Matthew. Well, do you have a question for us? You could call us. 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, that's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines confidential, all one word. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent, it is time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint each week, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. And Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. This one is from Chantal of Providencia complaining about American Airlines. Chantal says, I paid $2,820 as to purchase 141,100 Advantage points. That's American's frequent flyer points, of course, as most of you know. These points were all forfeited because I was unable to access my account on time so as to buy more points. I'm a 19-year-old girl and plan to never do any business with American Airlines in the future. I wrote them two registered letters but never, ever received a reply. If they can't reply to letters, I presume that their safety is not so good. As I live on the periphery of their services, it is much more difficult for me to maintain the points. We can't get their credit cards and we can't take a very short flight like someone living in, say, DFW. The amount of money that they have effectively stolen from me might not be much for them, but it is a lot for me. Just think they have stolen $2,820 from me without providing anything at all. Okay, so Ben, presumably here we're talking about a customer who has bought miles. This is something a lot of airlines allow you to do nowadays. Uh, like to top up, and this is and this is what's a little strange to me about this. But um, you know, normally, like let's say you have twenty three thousand miles, and you need twenty five thousand miles for a for a round trip that you want to take. You can buy the two thousand miles from the airline, uh, and then have enough miles to redeem. And, and usually, it's not a great rate. You know, if you sort of do the math, but it might make sense to you if if it helps you get the award rather than having to, uh, you know, pay for the whole flight, for example. I, I, so that's usually how this works as far as buying miles. But anyway, we all the information we have is is what we heard there in the complaint. What's what's your reaction to that, Ben? Is this well, my, fine or my rea- <laughs> well, you know, my reaction is I think there's a bit of fine and a bit of wine in this one. What is really unfortunate is that this 19-year-old girl who lives on the periphery of American services, as she says, you know, it's yeah. a little island in the Caribbean, and she doesn't have the flight options that other people do. Why on earth did she think it was a good thing to pay almost $3,000 to buy a bunch of Advantage miles? Yeah. I mean, that, that's just absolutely crazy. Yeah. To some extent, I think American might have some liability to someone like that saying, well, are you planning a big trip? Do you plan to use this? Here's our schedule in Providencialis. Yeah. I don't, wouldn't really expect them to do that. So I really feel for Chantal that she... For lack of a better term, she got duped into spending a lot of money on something that she just couldn't use. 
Now that said, Americans in the business of selling things, and if they can get people to buy miles, okay, and their miles all are very clear with the rules of when they expire and such. So I think Chantal has some culpability here for not understanding what she bought. I have no doubt that the 141,100 points she bought said these expire on this date, they have to be used, blah, blah, blah. I'll nail American again. They absolutely should have responded to her. She shouldn't have had to send two registered letters. I wonder if she called them. I can. Uh, I hope that she did, and maybe that would have been expensive for her. This is just a bad situation all around. She never should have bought the miles. American should have responded to her. They probably should have made some accommodation to not let them expire so quickly or at least remind her far enough in advance that they might expire and show her all the ways she could use them. I think they have some culpability for that if they're going to sell those kind of miles. So I think it's a, um, I think it's fine that American sells miles and I think it's fine that they have rules about how those miles are used. But I also think that there's a little bit of wine on Chantal's part that she really didn't know what she was buying and should have better understood to spend that kind of money on miles. Like you said, Seth, it almost never makes sense to buy miles. Almost never. And in fact, it's becoming less common because more airlines are even offering buy with miles plus cash now. So it's not like you have to buy all with cash or all with miles like used to be the case. Many airlines are saying, tell me how many miles you can put in. I'll tell you how much cash you have to top that off with. And so that even saves from buying the miles. In most cases, the miles are a bad deal to buy. And unless, like you said, it's truly just a top off situation or there's some big sale on the miles because of who you are or what you would do. It almost never makes sense. So this is just a bad situation all around. It makes the airline look bad. And they they had some very bad behavior here, especially not responding to her. But I think uh, this is a, a, a lesson for the 19-year-old girl that I hope that uh, she doesn't get duped again into this kind of purchase. Yeah, Ben, I, I think more than anything, as you said, just kind of a sad situation, right? It, 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 you feel bad for this person, just as you mentioned, Ben, you know, the way airline miles are priced. And by the way, I think it's becoming even more true for another reason, not just what you said about how the, they'll sort of let you do the cash plus miles, but just the way airlines price awards these days more and more, there are just kind of fewer loopholes. I mean, it's just there's now there's just kind of this relationship between what miles cost and and what the fare costs and typically what they sell the miles for with these programs like what she unfortunately bought here is way more than what it costs to accrue them in other ways so usually look if you're a thousand miles away look into is there a dining program where you can eat out anyway at a restaurant and pay with a credit card for something you're going to do anyway and maybe and if you haven't done it before you might get a, a big bonus that puts you over the top and regardless you're going to get whatever it is you know three or five extra miles uh, per dollar you spend send flowers some other way of of accruing those miles it's usually going to be cheaper i gave that 23,000 versus 25,000 uh example before probably not the best example because if you have to spend I don't know, $65 buying uh, a couple thousand miles to go to Disney World for a ticket that only would have cost $150. That's probably not even a, a good deal there. But you know, if you need 100,000 miles or 120,000 miles for a business class ticket that would cost 8,000 miles to go somewhere around the world and you have to spend the 50 or $60 
buying the miles to top it up to, because there's just no other way. It's just the fastest thing. That might not be a bad deal, but buying 141,000 miles is never going to make sense because those miles aren't going to get you as much travel typically as you would just get with your money. Uh, you know, you would, you would, for the same $2,800, you'd be able to just buy a lot more travel than you're especially if you wait for the sale if you can (laughs) yeah exactly you know know, Seth Chantal's pretty smart too and there's one other thing she said when she said we can't get their credit cards that's a very insightful point because most airlines that will let your miles expire will not make them expire if they earn money through your credit card purchases. So you have the airline's credit card and you go buy gas or you buy groceries. The airline gets paid for that, for the bank being able to issue those miles. And that in most airlines cases is good enough to keep your miles active. And that's the way that many people can stay active within a program, even if they don't fly that often. And the fact that she referenced we can't get their credit cards suggests to me that she knows that maybe these miles wouldn't have expired if she could have had a credit card to keep them live. Right. Literally, you spend a dollar on a credit card every 18 months with a lot of airlines, and that'll be that'll be enough to uh, to, to keep the, the miles active. That's right. A pack of gum. That's all it takes. <laughs> yep. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the AirlinesConfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com.